Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 47, Revelation, Your Brother and Partner. And in this episode, we're going to look at Revelation 1, 9 through 11, which really does begin the heart of the book. Now that we have made it past the introduction, we're going to be introduced to John and a little bit of a description of how he sees himself and what he sees his role as as well as where John is located and why he is in fact there. And then we're going to take a look at the beginnings of this vision that John is to receive and the instructions he is given about how he is to write down what he sees and what that begins to tell us about some of the ways that apocalyptic language is going to in fact work its way out throughout the book of Revelation. So without much more of an introduction, that sort of sets us up for where I would like to go in this week's episode. So let's just jump right into it. As we get into this week's episode, allow me just to read Revelation 1, 9 through 11, which are the verses that I intend to cover in this episode, and then I will simply make some observations um, from those verses as we work our way back through them. So here's what Revelation 1, 9 says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Now, as I was pondering this week's episode and making some notes and some thoughts. It, it was something I kind of found that was sort of funny that to me um, kind of launched me right into um, sort of what I want to talk about in this episode. And that's something that shows up in verse nine, but it, it's the idea that, that human nature is actually a very curious thing to me. Um, and I'm going to make an observation about it in a second, but I'm going to relate it to the reason why I think it's curious is because I've fallen prey to this and have seen others fall prey to it as well. But one of the aspects of human nature that I find to be the most curious is the fact that people see what they expect to see and they hear what they expect to hear. And so what this oftentimes translates into is that when people read something, for instance, they tend to think it means whatever they expect it to mean. And so they tend to interpret what those things mean through whatever lens they are currently looking through. And I guess I I only mean this is curious to me because of how common this happens and how once you come to recognize this or even your own tendencies to do this, it's shocking to you how rampant this idea actually is. And so it never ceases to amaze me, although sadly it concerns me as well, that a person can go through life quite unaware of certain realities simply because they are not looking for them. And so they are unable to see that if, let's say, reality A is true and reality B follows A, and I believe in reality B, then I also need to believe in reality A. And yet this rarely happens. Most people, if they are not looking for those connections, will simply never see them. And I think Revelation 1.9 is a perfect example of this. So John tells us that he is these churches' 
brother and partner in the tribulation. This is how John opens the book, with his claim that he is their partner in the tribulation. Now, what's so curious to me is how I could have read that so many times in the past, along with my church growing up and others who mostly see Revelation as a book of the future, and never once posed the question, hmm, what's the relationship between John's tribulation and the great tribulation that we suspect is coming later? Or, or some people may even need to ask first, is there a relationship between these two tribulations? Now, this is so fascinating to me because I'm not sure I ever took the time to recognize that John himself, in his current situation, saw himself as a brother and partner in the tribulation. And so then I'm compelled to ask, is it possible then, as far as the book of Revelation is concerned, that talk of tribulation might actually involve present circumstances? Now, at this point, I am not making any leaps or claims about what that might mean. Um, there are some schools of thought who think that the entire book of Revelation is present tense to John and therefore it's past tense to us. I, I do not take that line of thinking, nor do I think that the vast majority of Revelation is future to John and to us, and I've explained why I don't think that in previous podcast episodes. But all I'm suggesting here is the same thing I suggested with the Bible as a whole. Allow the Bible, or in this case Revelation, to tell its own story. Allow it to unfold for us what it wants us to know as we go. And if we do that here, what we find is that in some sense, John is a partner in the tribulation along with the seven churches to whom he is writing. And he sees himself as a partner in relation to three things, the tribulation, the kingdom, and what he says, the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Now, this is just what John is telling us. He is on an island called Patmos. It's a small island in the Aegean Sea, about 40 miles west of the coast of Asia Minor, and about 65 or so miles from Ephesus, which is the nearest city. There is archaeological evidence that islands in Patmos' part of the Aegean Sea were used by local governors to exile socially disruptive individuals. This apparently was John's experience, because wherever the words, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, appear in Revelation, they are associated with the suffering of Jesus' faithful witnesses. We see a reference of this in chapter 6, verse 9, chapter 12, verse 17, and once again in chapter 20, verse 4. So even here then, John's exile is one form of the tribulation that he shares with the churches to whom he is writing, and he tells them that he is their partner in this. So he is their partner in the tribulation, and the word tribulation just means distress, difficulty, trouble. He is their partner in all of these things and the kingdom. Now, we've looked at length in this podcast series already about the kingdom but what I want you to understand about it here is simply this. Jesus is, verse 5 tells us, the ruler of kings on earth. 
So his kingdom is one that is superior to all other kingdoms. His kingdom is one that will never end. And the way Jesus brought in this kingdom is superior to the way all other kingdoms advance in this world. And it is the only one that will never end for one simple reason. Its way is not from this world. Now, we will have plenty more to say about what all this means as we go. But for now, just understand, John is with us in this. He is not writing from a place aloof and unfamiliar with our struggle. He has been exiled because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He is our partner. The same word Paul uses throughout his writings when speaking of fellowship. So, for example, in Paul's opening prayer for the Philippian Christians in the book of Philippians, believe it or not, also a city and part of the Roman Empire, which also is the context in which John is writing in Revelation. But Paul's greeting to these believers in verses 3 to 5 says this, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So you see, Paul rejoices because these believers are with him in this. They are his partners. And so he goes on in verse 7 of chapter 1 in Philippians, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace. So partnership, partakers, it's the same Greek word. And this is why Paul can go on to say in Philippians 3 verse 10 that he wishes to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible he may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now that word share his sufferings, yeah, there's the word again. It's our word partnership, partaker, those who experience fellowship with Jesus and with other believers. So Paul shares in Christ's sufferings. The Philippian Christians are partakers with Paul of grace. And John is these churches' brother and partner. John, as one who understands the calling of a witness, which the book of Revelation will exhort us time and time again to be, this John understands our struggle. He understands the difficulties we face in trying to live this out. He knows the pain and the sorrow and the rejection, but he also knows the joy and the victory and the hope of faithfully witnessing to a kingdom that has Jesus on its throne. And it is precisely because Jesus is on the throne that John and the Christians he's writing to are experiencing tribulation in the first place. And the reason they do, and the reason we would if we were faithfully following, is because the kingdoms of this world do not give up their claim on their citizens without a fight. And sometimes that fight turns aggressive and even violent. And Christians are oftentimes caught in the middle. It's hard to remain loyal to Jesus and the ways of his kingdom in the midst of a world that does not acknowledge him or his ways as anything other than foolishness. And so each one of these churches are daily faced with one of two options. Number one, 
faithfully witness to the truth of who Jesus is and receive mistreatment, accusation, opposition, difficulty, slander, and oppression from those who reveal themselves to be enemies of the gospel, or two, soften your stance on some of what Jesus stands for or what Jesus stands against so as to lessen the negative impact that your witness might otherwise bring into your life as a result of your surrounding culture not liking what you are saying. These are our two basic options as witnesses of Jesus. Receive conflict from our culture or receive comfort. How we choose to witness will be directly tied to which one of these we are willing to receive. And when we get to chapters two and three, you will see clearly that every single exhortation, encouragement, or rebuke that these churches receive from Jesus center entirely on whether or not they are receiving conflict or comfort from their surrounding culture. You see, the church's calling is to be faithful witnesses to Jesus Christ. And how faithfully the church does this will directly shape the kinds of things Jesus chooses to say to them whether his words are comforting and encouraging or harsh and direct. To a few of the churches, it's a mixture of both. Desiring comfort from our culture will most likely invite conflict with Jesus. And comfort from Jesus will most likely invite conflict with our culture. This is just the way things work. And this is why John says that he is their brother and partner, not only in the tribulation and the kingdom, but in the patient endurance that is in Jesus. So this is what it will take. It'll take patient endurance. It'll take perseverance. This is going to take long suffering, or in Eugene Peterson's words, a long obedience in the same direction. That's the idea. It will take disciplined resolve to remain faithful. It will take a humility that is willing to see what areas of our lives we think are in line with Jesus' ways, but may not be. Will we be able to hear Jesus' rebuke to us of those things? And then there may be other areas where we've spent years of our lives troubled by realities that Jesus will shine new light on and give us a new perspective. Because what the church needs in order to be healthy and to carry out her calling as faithful witnesses to Jesus is a true picture of Jesus himself. Who is he really? And are there ways we have possibly misunderstood things about him that have led to a damaged witness of him in the world? Well, Revelation provides us with answers to all of these questions because it offers us an unveiling of Jesus Christ. And we will see that before we even leave chapter 1, that it's precisely an accurate view of Jesus that shapes how faithfully, or not so faithfully, his people bear witness to him and his kingdom. And our patient endurance in bearing witness to the world will be in direct relationship to how patient Jesus endures with us. Do we always get it? the first time around, or the second, or the third? How many years is Jesus willing to take with you and me? How patient is he 
that we see things the way he does, I'll let you in on a little secret. You will not patiently endure in Jesus when bearing witness to him in the world if you do not recognize and embrace how patiently Jesus endures with you. And I will help you see exactly why that's the case as we go. Now, in verse 10, John tells us that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And the the Lord's day, through the history of the church, has referred to Sunday, the day after the Jewish Sabbath, which was on Saturday. And the reason for this is because of the resurrection of Jesus. So the resurrection was on Sunday, the eighth day, or the first day of the new week. So Jesus rose from the dead and ushered in a new era, a new life, a new creation. And our church today gathers on Sunday to worship the one who truly is ruler of kings on earth, who has conquered the grave, who has defeated sin and death, and who has given his people the victory along with him. And so the vision John receives about what all this means for the churches is given to him on the Lord's day. And what a fitting day it is to receive that kind of a message. But before we even get into the vision itself and before John even receives this vision, he simply hears something. And allow me just to read the last part of verse 10 and into verse 11 again. I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. So John says that he hears a loud voice like a trumpet. Now, I grew up in school and I was in the band and I played the trumpet. Okay, well, that's not exactly what John is talking about. You know, I'm not playing, you know, playing a a fight song for my school, for the football team or something like that. The trumpet that John is referring to most likely is the, the shofar, the ram's horn trumpet, if you will. But throughout the Old Testament, the trumpet blast signaled a number of different things. And I would like to just give them to you in kind of a list, but it signaled the Lord's descent to meet Moses on Mount Sinai, Exodus 19, Exodus 20, talk about that a couple of different times. It was later associated with the Lord's entering his temple, and Psalm 47 makes reference to this. Um, Trumpets called troops to battle, and they also called the congregation to worship. You know, the the shofar would would, would, um, ring out on the Day of Atonement every 50th year, signaling the liberation of God's people. And that's found in Leviticus chapter 25, liberating them, um, liberating their people and their land, which is what the year of Jubilee was always a reference back to. And so this vision, John is about to receive will in different ways and at different times embody all of these themes. The Lord coming to meet with his people, the Lord entering his temple, a call for God's people to battle. Now, just what battle means, we don't yet know, but we will. A call for God's people to gather for worship and a recognition of what truly liberates people in this world. And so as this vision is merely announced here, we can begin to anticipate some of what might be addressed as the vision unfolds. 
So John is told to write down this vision and send it to the seven churches. Now, as we've already seen, seven is the number of completion or the fullest expression of something. These seven churches then, while actual churches in the first century, represent and embody the many obstacles the church throughout history has or will face in its attempts at faithfully bearing witness to Jesus. And so we will look at the settings of each of these churches when we come to chapters 2 and 3, and we will see how their particular context and their particular culture helped or harmed their witness in those places. And we'll be able to see similarities to our own time and culture and know how Jesus wishes us to faithfully bear witness to him in our time based upon how he exhorted each of these churches in theirs. And so that's kind of the idea. That's how reading something that was taking place historically can still impact us in the present. John, of course, receives a word and he's given this list of churches in a particular order. The order these churches are given in simply reflects the order that John's letter would be received and circulated among these seven churches. So Ephesus, the first church addressed in chapter 2, is simply the closest city to where John currently is on the island of Patmos, roughly 65 miles away. From Ephesus, someone carrying this written vision of John's would travel northwest to Smyrna. From Smyrna, he would go straight north to Pergamum. From Pergamum, southeast to Thyatira, and then on through the remaining three churches, kind of making a little bit of a semicircle loop. Um, And as we've discussed in the introduction to this Revelation series, the entire book of Revelation is the letter that each church receives. And what this means then is that each church can hear Jesus' words to another church that is, say, struggling with compromising their faith because of the threat of persecution. How do Jesus' words to that church differ from his words to another church facing different issues? Now, this idea is incredibly valuable for the church today because not all churches are facing the same things. We serve the same Jesus, and we are all bearing witness to him, but we do so in varying contexts that look different. So Jesus' message to each individual church is part of his message to every church, and we need to hear each part because if we or our context ever changes, we may very well find ourselves in need of a new word from Jesus to properly address our new setting. So imagine you're the church in Pergamum and you're being called to repent of your tendency toward compromise. What if you read that letter and you read the remainder of Revelation and you you agree with him that repenting from that compromise is true for you? And so you repent. Well, now you're in a different situation as a church. You might more resemble the church in Smyrna who is being persecuted because of their faithfulness. It's a good thing you have access to Jesus's words to them because now you're in a new setting. So when you end these sections and these messages to each of these churches, the rest of the book of Revelation will spell out, in strange apocalyptic images and symbols, the realities that each individual church faces in their current setting. And so it's been said before, and I agree, you could legitimately read the book of Revelation with seven different lenses on. How would someone in Ephesus 
dealing with what they are dealing with. Hear the troublesome passages in Revelation talking about judgment. Or how would someone in Pergamum dealing with their temptation toward compromise, how would they hear Revelation's insistence that loyalty to the beast will not end well for anyone? You see, the images, the strange scenes, they are simply showing what normal everyday life on earth actually looks like from God's perspective. And its intention is to exhort the churches to understand what is really going on in their lives and in the lives of those in their culture. And so we need the messages to all seven churches. We need words of comfort sometimes. We need words of rebuke at others. Sometimes we're a mixed bag, getting some things right and other things very wrong. Sometimes we even find ourselves with one foot in two camps, worshipers of the one seated on the throne and also worshipers of the beast. This is why Jesus will repeatedly end his message to every single church with the words, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, we probably, most likely, will spend an entire episode on just what this rather strange phrase means and where it comes from. But for now, just realize that just reading Jesus' words to us does not guarantee that we are hearing him. He will oftentimes speak into issues that we have grown quite comfortable with. And if we are unwilling to allow him to address those things, then we will remain deaf to what he is actually saying. This is a real danger. And it affects millions of people all over the world today, both outside and inside the church. Again, I will explain why that's the case in an upcoming episode. But for now, that's all I really wanted to say on this episode about these introductory verses. In next week's episode, we will begin to see, along with John, just what this vision actually consists of. And it should not surprise you, but it is going to be a picture, and a beautiful and powerful picture at that, of just who Jesus actually is. Because no other vision and no other message that God could ever give to us makes us a speck of difference if we do not have an accurate picture of God's most perfect revelation, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we will dive into eagerly in next week's episode. I do really want to thank you all for continuing to tune in, and I've heard fun reports of those some of you sharing different episodes with friends or encouraging people to listen in. I know last week's episode was impactful for a number of you, and those are always encouraging conversations to get into. If you would like to follow me on Instagram, you can follow me at the Unbinding the Bible podcast. Um, I'm also floating around on Facebook. Joshua Yoder is my name, and you can email me any questions or comments you have to unbindingthebible at gmail.com. And again, thank you so much for those of you who are continuing to support the podcast. I would always encourage you, if, if this podcast has meant something to you or it's meant something to a family member or a friend, you can support this on a monthly basis with a couple bucks or just an encouragement of somewhere along the way. But that allows me to keep being able to produce these week in and week out. And I've decided to take some of the money 
that I've received and to purchase additional resources for me to continue to study um, because I'm not just here telling you things that I think I know that you should know. I, I am learning new things along with you each week, but I'm committed to those of you tuning in to giving you accurate and helpful and clear teaching on the Bible. That's the entire purpose of this podcast, and I do not intend at all to disappoint you in what I am able to share, but I have so much more to learn right along with you. And so I I will request that you send me questions or comments because it is helpful for me to know what you are thinking so that maybe you're tuned into something that I'm not and that in a future episode, I could raise that question for others' benefit and we would all win. So don't hold back. If you have questions and comments, please send those to me because I am really only um, have one perspective and that's in my own mind and it makes sense in there, but it's sometimes it's a little cloudy. So would love to hear from you. I very much value the, the partnership of other believers, just like John does with the churches to whom he writes. So God bless you this week. Thanks for tuning in.